Hi there, I'm Owen McDermott and this is Deep Diving. I had a self-imposed hiatus for a couple of weeks while I tended to a breakfast radio show in Ireland. So wherever you're listening from, thank you for sticking around and coming back to check out episode eight. This one is a fascinating one. Today on the podcast, I'm chatting to a gentleman by the name of Joe McKeldry. Now, Joe won the X Factor back in 2009, beating the evergreen Ollie Murs. Now, this is when X Factor was at the height of its powers. It's a bit of a faded, jaded force now. But in 2009, for the final that Joe won, the audience peaked at 19 million viewers. To put that in context with something people know and love today, the most recent finale of Love Island Season 5 was the most watched in the history of the series ever, with a whopping 3.8 million viewers. 3.8 million viewers tuned in to see Greg and Amber take the crown. It would take five years, practically five years, of that audience watching, added together to equal the one audience of the final X Factor that Joe won. Now, within two years of winning the show, he was outed as gay on his own Twitter when he was still coming to terms with his own sexuality. He was dropped by Simon Cowell's record label Psycho and he was busy forging a new path as a stage performer and opera singer against the backdrop of intense media speculation. So we talk about all of that on the podcast today, how the X Factor works, what the record deal is, what it's like becoming that level of super famous. We're talking Love Island times five and the good, the bad, the ugly of winning what was at one time the greatest show on earth. Oh, this is good. We've got coffee We've got Joe in a very lush dressing gown. I know, sorry, I should have dressed up, but I no, don't. have come off stage about 10 minutes ago. Right, so I will, I will. <laughs> Thank you, by the way. No airs and graces around here. Most people would say I'll take a shower. I might well, have a back massage. Well, do you know what? Um, you, you get used to it after a while. you just you got to make things fit into the day, haven't you? How you doing? I'm very well, thank you. So I've told you a little bit about the podcast and who's been on and, and the vibe of it. Yeah. I was kind of hoping you might do like a, a philosophical meditation on your life for the last 10 years. Cause it's been 10 years it's since, 10 years since year, X Factor. Yeah, yeah. I guess as a force now, it's a little bit faded. I mean, it's not completely extinguished. But when you were there... 2009 it was like the epicenter of x factor being a juggernaut oh yeah like it was yeah. it was making careers for sport it was pulling mm. numbers yeah. that tv shows now even the big ones can only dream of yeah, like yeah. it was the height of it yeah um your memories of that time the good the bad and the ugly what's a good jumping off point you know i think you can never really explain to somebody like what you said there when when i did the show it was an absolute phenomenon you know it people were obsessed with it everywhere you went it was front pages of the papers every day um and we were kind of guarded from that in a sense because we all lived in a house yeah in Hampstead like on the edge of Hampstead Heath it was we lived in this beautiful big house we all lived there with two of the production staff would move in every week and we would kind of be in this kind of protection but we had no wi-fi in there oh really Uh, no we didn't so you had your mobile phones but really social media hadn't quite twitter came out the year so in the december of that year i remember somebody walked up to us and said these are the these new phones there's a new app on it called twitter and we want all of the contestants to we've made you all an account and i remember thinking what the hell's this twitter what's this cool twitter thing so i don't even think instagram existed at that no it wouldn't have yeah um because i don't think i got instagram until about 2012 2013 i I was 2014 was my first post yeah. yeah so 
there was no social media. So even if you did have the internet, you really had to kind of go and search for articles because even then, I mean, we've moved on quite a lot in 10 years. Yeah. In terms of media outlets, a lot of it's done online now. So you can literally Google your name and find out what everybody thinks of you in seconds. Whereas then, you know, it sounds like we're talking about the Stone Ages, but it was slightly different. So we were kind of protected from all of that. I mean, we knew... We were briefed a lot from the press teams and stuff of what was going on. And if there was ever, ever stories coming out and stuff about any of us, we would be aware of them just before they broke. So you knew about that. Did you have anything nasty written about you in the run of the shows? Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, like just like nasty little kind of journalistic comments. Not Not anything of like any kind of... Friends selling stories or... Uh, I had a few people sell stories. Um, oh, really? Yeah, and ironically, none of them were my friends. <laughs> <laughs> like, most of them were people who I hung around with at school. and Like, they... what, what kind of stuff? Well, just, I, I remember a girl that I went out with, um, like, in school. We had, like, a very, very innocent kind of school playground relationship. And she sold a story about how she was my first boyfriend um, I then had a few and, people... And would you, at the time, like, would you have any inclination to reach out to her and go, what the fuck are you doing? Like, I think I've always kind of... Uh, to me, it, that's never been... Um, that's never been my way. I just kind of think, if, that, if somebody's going to do that, then is it really even worth trying to reason with that person? Because me yeah. personally, I would never sell a story on someone... You know, I have lots of friends in the industry and I would like to think if I wasn't in the industry myself, I wouldn't think twice about, first of all, discussing any of their business. And second of all, I certainly wouldn't sell it to a newspaper, you know, but maybe hindsight's a wonderful thing, I suppose. And because I'm in the industry, maybe I look at it differently. But I've never I've never, ever understood why people would want to do that to someone. But nothing that burned you badly. No, the... but I, but it's not it's not really about that, is it? It's no, it's no, more no. about it, whether it burns you badly or not. It's about the fact that somebody has gone somewhere behind your back and made a considerable amount of money on your name and sold it to the whole country and just put that information out there without your say so anything. You know, it's part of the industry and it is unfortunately we have to just suck that up and accept that that is what happens but you do kind of think come on like if you actually just break it down in plain terms like what are you playing at you yeah, know it's like how would you gross. feel if somebody did that to you you it's know it's really gross no yeah. it is um on that thing you know the two members of staff moving into the house and all that mm. like with love island particularly last year huge conversation around the duty of care yeah. what what the producers do to insulate people yeah. like obviously you had the press briefings but did you feel safe did you feel like if you had a problem if you weren't coping because i guess the fame is it's kind of instant the way love island fame was instant like your face yeah, is out there to, very you've quickly got to, you've got to remember they they're famous instant but they have no idea about it because they're in a house yeah true and we 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 still went places you know we had so it's incremental for you you can see yeah it. We, so i'll tell you a, a funny story that that always makes me laugh because people say, you know, oh my God, you literally became famous overnight. And it is so true. Like, I mean, obviously, you know, we'd filmed the show and previous to that, like I'd I'd done my local performances and stuff and kind of built up to that moment, but nothing massively instrumental, just kind of building me confidence. And I remember 
the first audition went out and, you know, you get a bit of attention and everyone's like, oh, he's really good and I really like him and I want to root for him and stuff. And people in the town, excuse me, it was a bit of a big deal because obviously everybody, most people are from a small town. Yeah. Most people know who you are and they're like, oh my God, that's Joe from down the road. Like, you know, and there was that kind of excitement. Then it kind of filters off a bit because you then go to, to film boot camp and judges' houses and it's all filmed ahead of quite ahead of time. Yeah. Um, so pretty much from you getting through, boot camp happens within about two and a half, three weeks. And then after that, you go straight to judges' houses. And I, so I got, I got through to judges' house. I was not allowed to tell anyone apart from my family. So nobody knew. I actually even went back to college for three weeks and had to pretend that I hadn't got through. So I went back and everyone was like, oh, you know, never mind. You didn't get through. Oh, um, and I was well like, done, yeah, man, no. Acting. Yeah, and, uh, and um, I think I let it slip to like a few really close friends. But it was, it was, I kept it a good secret. And then we moved down to London to this big house three nights before the Judges' Houses episode um, aired on TV. So they would know who the final 12 were. Sure. So we got to London. We all got taken in blacked out cars, blacked out windows. And they literally had like black blankets around the cars and everything. Because at that point, you get to London, the paparazzi are there. They're trying to find out who are in the final 12. Is that exciting? Just even the paparazzi being there? I mean, yeah, it was, but it was weird because it was like, you know, we had bags over our heads and everything. Like they were literally like keeping us in secret. And we had to go into this house and um, <laughs> you stay in this house for three days. Okay. So we move in the house. It's a beautiful house. You know, we watched, we all watched movies together, spent quite a bit of time bonding together and stuff. And on the Sunday night, it went out. And so previous, three days previous to that, I'd gone to the Starbucks around the corner. I bought a coffee. It was literally nobody batting an eyelid. Yeah. Nobody could have cared in the slightest. The Monday morning, I thought, oh, do you know what? I'm going to get up, go for a coffee, go out for a run. You walk out the door, I went down the street, and all of a sudden, all of these men start jumping out of cars, paps. I went down the Starbucks, and it got, at, within about, I reckon, five minutes, the whole front, not necessarily because they'd saw me, they'd saw the cameras outside of Starbucks, and then everybody starts to go, why is What's there a load of cameras? Sure, within about five minutes, there was about 100 people outside the Starbucks. I was on my own, there was nobody with us. I had to phone the security guard, who was employed to stay in the house with me and he had to come and get us from the Starbucks and you think if I'd have done this yesterday nobody would have cared isn't that amazing like I find that quite scary that that the power that that show had then you know that that literally overnight did you enjoy that though for me for me it was obviously it was exciting being a part of the show and stuff but you you like I said before you you lived in a protected bubble in the sense of that you were kind of you were in it, but you were, you were you could kind of you were guarded from it as well. Yeah. But for me, it was a huge adjustment. For, I, I never wanted to be famous, so it was never a goal of mine to have everybody know who I am. Yeah. So I think I just wanted to sing, and I kind of erased that part out of me head. I was kind of like, I'll deal with that later. And then when I got there, I was like, Wow, okay, this is quite overwhelming. So it took me a while to to adjust to that. I think I would say it took about two years. Okay, right. Not not where it was terrifying or I was depressed or anything like that but it sometimes it used to I used to be like wow this is a lot like this is a lot to take in yeah <laughs> you know and just moments where you kind of go what on earth is happening you went up against Ollie Murs in the final yeah um and this is quite, again this is kind of like behind the curtain stuff but when you win yeah. Right. So they call out your name. Yeah. Fucking huge emotional moment. You got to perform. Actually, you got to perform with your idol, George Michael, yeah, which is yeah. I'm sure you've talked about this a million times. Yeah. But I guess maybe it's extra special 
given he's since passed? I don't know if that's kind of solidified well, I, I, it as a... I think, sadly, we always tend to... We always tend to appreciate somebody too much when it's too late, you know? Yeah. And I think people really got to see... He he done a lot of lovely things for people behind the scenes. And you know, that man, like, if you look back at his career, the way he was treated by the press, you know, over the years... And, you know, yes, he made some mistakes and he did some things that didn't help with that. But I think he was... He was so ahead of his time as an artist and just a, an absolute legend. And, you know, and what to me, what is a shame is, is that it was only for him to pass away that then we hear all of these wonderful stories about him that he'd managed to kind of keep away from the tabloid fodder kind of press sure. moments. Um, and just he just wanted to help people out. And honestly, he was such a nice man. I've met a lot of people in this industry and some who are massively successful, some who are massively successful and not that talented, and some who are <laughs> massively successful and very talented. And he is up there with massively successful, probably one of the most talented musician and artists of all time, legendary status, and was also really nice. And when you get that combination of the three, you know you've been very lucky to meet someone. You it's know, rare. I've met one or two of my heroes that have disappointed me. It's a horrible feeling. It's, yeah, exactly. And I, I was terrified that I would meet him. Because I think if you ask probably a lot of male singers in the industry and and people who are who who grew up with his music, he's he's the ultimate male vocalist of all time. And yeah. you know him, Luther Vandross are my like top two. Where you listen to them and you're like just faultless every time. You know. Yeah. So you win. It's this life changing moment. The prize is billed as a million pounds, right? <laughs> <laughs> The laugh. So this is what I'd love to know. Well, the prize like, is not, first of all, the prize is not billed as a million pounds. It's a million it's pound t- deal. It's a million pound record contract. Record contract, right. Which I think has been over the years construed as that means the minute you win, you get a million pounds put into your bank account. But that's it's a million pound record contract. And what that means is that a million pounds will be spent on the making of your album. Okay. So, and I mean... I don't. I, I didn't get the receipts, um, so I don't know if they actually spent a million pound on my record contract. But I was happy with the first album I made. Do you, do you get like a chunk yeah, of money you, in the you, bank? You get money. So basically, when when you sign a record deal, you get a record advance, yeah. which is recoupable. So they do take it back off record sales again. So you don't get here for winning the X Factor. Here's a hundred grand or two hundred grand in your bank account. Go have some fun. And the rest will spend on... You, do you get a chunk yeah, of change? Yeah, you get a chunk of money. Okay, okay. Yeah, you do get a chunk of money. Um, That's not recoupable. No, it is recoupable. So okay. it's, part of the, it's part of a record... So basically, any, any standard record contract that you sign, yeah. you get a record deal, yeah. and however much that record deal would be for, you know, at, at like, say it was £500 record deal. Right. So they're going to spend £500,000 on your contract or your album including the making of videos advertisement performances like everything photo shoots videos everything that's a lot you get a small chunk out of that and then you on your royalties of what you make they'll take that back they take that back before you then get your royalties so it's almost like having a mortgage really it's you know so for just for winning x factor like you win love island they give you 50 grand Cash, yeah. take it, tax-free, yeah. well done. You get no money for winning X Factor. That well, is... you do, I mean, you do. Because obviously, like, you, nine times out of ten, you sell more records than would be recoupable of that money. Sure. So it's not like you're out of pocket. But you, earn, you have to earn that money. You have oh, to sell 100%. the albums. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And, and, you know, 
if uh, I suppose if you went to the bank and asked them for a loan, and you would have to pay interest. It's the yeah. same kind of thing, I suppose. I guess if I'd... somebody's putting the, the risk in to spend money on your album, you know, I do think the industry, the, the music industry, is a funny old world to work in, and it does have very strange rules. But I, I, I earned a great amount of money out of the first couple of years of, of that show because I think know? I think it was um, I think it was maybe Talisa actually who was talking about between Endubs and X Factor. She was, I think she was talking about like being famous, but actually having no money and everybody knowing who you are, but still having to get the bus. I think it was her. And she was like, that's, this is really hard space to be in. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because obviously the industry is like, people forget, you know, and, and I, I love my job and I love what I've done over the last 10 years. So I never want this to sound like I'm dragging anyone or, you know, trying to make it a negative space because it's never been my way. Sure. But people forget that it's like any other industry. It's built as this magical, wonderful world. And so it should be. It's entertainment. And the, to the point of what people need to know for entertainment, that, that's the nice space of it. But people forget behind the scenes, it's a huge multi-million pound money-making industry. Yeah. You know, as is, you know, I'm doing a musical theatre tour right now, as is that. It's it, it as is TV, as is Love Island, as is X Factor, as is Strictly. They're all that nobody's doing it for free. They're not putting people on these platforms to just give them a platform. Crack, it's yeah. to make money, you know. So when you're a part of that, it's I think people forget that, that there's a whole business going on behind the scenes. Yeah. And with that, you know, sometimes there's shady things happen. Sometimes there's things that you're like, what is going on here? You know, and that, what we've just mentioned there, that Chalisa moment, that's like they're painting this picture of this wonderful pop group and band and stuff, yet. They're scrimping and scraping behind the scenes. If you go and ask a lot of artists, that's probably true in most cases in the first couple of years. Yeah. You know? Now, you, I don't have the up-to-date sales, but you've sold somewhere like like around three million albums, something like that all in? Something like that. Yeah, I don't like, know the exact that's figures. That's phenomenal, right? In the millions of albums, mm. you won X Factor. It's at the height of its powers. I saw an interview you did, actually. You probably remember this. I think it could have been the day after you won and uh-huh. you're on, like, the ITV breakfast show. Oh, right, and okay. whoever the host was, he holds up, like, the front page of one of the Red Tops. Right. And it's like, Simon Cowell has done this multi-million pound deal for Joe to go to Hollywood. It sounded like you were going to go Glee. Okay. They said you are going to be the next Zac Efron. All right, okay. And, and you were kind of going, I've, I've heard nothing about that. That's yeah. news to me. Sounds yeah. cool. There's all this stuff swirling. Yeah. So that was 2009. And then by 2011, you and Psycho, the record label, Simon Cowell's had parted ways. Yeah. Why did it go sour? Or is sour the wrong word? I mean, I wouldn't say it was sour. Um, it, they might say it was, but I, I don't think it was. To be honest with you, I think at the time I was a bit like, oh my God, okay. Like I've just, this is the first record deal and I've been dropped now, it was the best thing that ever could have happened to us. How so? I think we were not on the same page. We didn't have the same goals and outlook on my career. We didn't... What's that mean? Well, I think I was about being in the industry and experiencing lots of different forms of entertainment and creating a long career. And I think they just... I have nothing against them for this because they make, it's a business. you know. And if I was in their position, maybe I would think like that. They just wanted to make money quickly. And uh, we, we weren't on the same page. you know. Uh, some of the things that they wanted to do were not what things that I wanted to do. What that mean, like covers and... and... No, not, not even anything music-related. It was just like, I think... I mean, it's no secret you're on a conveyor belt, you know, and people... You're coming out of this show, you put the album out. If it does well or if it sells enough for them to warrant another album, then they'll do another one. But they're not massively invested. I mean, if you look at the roster that they've now got signed, I, I think how many people from X Factor are still signed to that label? 
like I guess little mix. No, they're not signed to them anymore. Oh wow! Yeah. Oh, they oh they moved. Did they go moved. to Universal? I think they went to yeah Island Records or something yeah. like that. Okay, yeah. yeah, and actually even Niall. Epic, sorry, Epic. He moved to he moved to Universal. Yeah, so I yeah. think if, I think if we're just looking at it plain as day. They're not about creating long-term longevity careers. They're about making money, and that's absolutely fine. Capitalize on the momentum, quick, move on. Yeah, and if it sticks, great, we'll work with it. But if it doesn't, who cares? You know, and that's never been my end game. So I think from the offset, we didn't have screaming rows and arguments about it. It was just like this is not really how I want to work. But and, and I'll kind of go with it and see what happens. And then if it doesn't work out, I'll see you later. Thanks for the opportunity. And was it like a slow fade, or did you just sit down in a meeting one day and? We um, so I released the album in September 2010, and in the February I think it was we had a meeting, and it was like, yeah, okay, great, thanks for the opportunity. Wow, we're done. Thanks, Mill. Shake hands. Good yeah. luck. Okay, and it, it, for me, you know, I had so many opportunities on offer behind the scenes and stuff, and once again, it was made to be this like life-ending thing in the press, and oh my god, poor Joe's like moved back to Newcastle. I'd actually bought a house like two two weeks previous to that. And there was a photographer outside who took a picture of us going into my old house where I used to live, picking some stuff up to move into a brand new house that I'd bought. And it was painted like, oh, he's had to move back home to Newcastle. No, I chose to live in Newcastle. Is that, like, is that embarrassing? Do you try to fight against that? Or it's you not just embarrassing because I'm like, I've just bought a house. Like, I don't, and, and for me, I no, don't... Okay, embarrassing is the wrong word, but is it annoying, I guess? Well, it's a bit like, that. okay, that's the narrative that, that they, they want to go with. If somebody's picked a narrative that they want to take you're probably not going to change that and you can waste your time trying to change it or you can just carry on being good at what you do and get on with what you want to do, you know? And that's always been my rule. So I could not wait to move back to Newcastle. I lived in London for six months while I recorded the album. They put us in a rented apartment and... Recoupable. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Probably, yeah. (laughs) Maybe that should be called the the interview name, Recoupable. (laughs) Um, You know... Um, and and uh, what's, what's the... My mum always says it. There's no such... No such thing as a free lunch. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But for me, all of that kind of thing, it was painted to be this really bad thing. But I'd, I went home, I, I bought a property up there and I was so proud that I was able to do that. Yeah. And I was so excited to be at the... You know, to be back home in Newcastle, you know, because that, that was my base. And um, so all of that time was... It publicly was made to be like this awful thing. And I'd just signed to do this Pop Star Opera Star TV show. Yeah. And there was a load of other opportunities off the back of that, possibly that would be happening. It was really, honestly, it happened on the Friday. By the Monday, I was starting my next job and I was I was on the way to the next thing. Two other interesting aspects about that time before we move on to the next chapter. One thing that happened that year that hadn't happened before, because X Factor had had this uninterrupted run, and it was kind of almost expected yeah. that the X Factor winner single would be the number one Christmas single. You had The Climb, mm. it was a gorgeous rendition, and there was this campaign, yeah. huge publicity around it, I'd say a bit of money behind it as well. Yeah. It was like an anti-X Factor campaign to make Rage Against the Machine mm. the number one. And it pipped you to the post. You, it, yeah. it was number one. You were number two. Did that feel like mean-spirited or something at the time? No, it, they'd sat us down way before, I think, like week three of the live shows and said, listen, you might be asked about this in press interviews. Um, there's a campaign against the show. It's nothing personal to any contestants. Whoever wins, they're going to run this campaign against. So we'll talk about that closer to the final. I completely forgot about it. I was never asked about it 
happened in interviews. And then I remember the night I won, on the way, on the way to GMTV that morning, we were sat in the car. I mean, I'd had about 45 minutes sleep. And somebody was rabbiting in my ear about this Rage Against the Sheep campaign. <laughs> and I just, honestly, I wasn't, I mean, I've got the attention span of a gnat anyways. Like, okay. I'm terrible. You've got about, a, anybody who works with me knows you have a five-minute window. And if you don't get the information in the five-minute window, <laughs> I'm out. I'm gone. Yeah, okay. Um, and I was exhausted. And they said, they're probably going to ask you about this this morning. And honestly, I had no idea. And then when from that interview on that morning... I then realised how big the campaign was. I was like, oh my God, like every... But I still didn't really understand. I didn't even know what a midweek was. You know, like a midweek chart position. And they're going, oh God, right. We're, all right, we're ahead in the midweeks. Oh no, we've dropped now. And I'm like, what are all these people talking about? Like, yeah, I okay. had no idea. So it didn't ruin the buzz? I thought you no, was just I was, I, To be honest with you, I was so exhausted. I didn't even know my own name. I, I was so excited and on a high that I was just like, what is going on? And I was so busy that week. I've never been on a schedule like that since. Like, it was insane. Okay. You know, I was on the phone in, in the car talking to journalists and literally falling asleep being interviewed. Like, I was, I, I had no sleep. Okay. Um, so I didn't even have time to think about it. And I was just so excited to win the show and have a song out. Like, to me, I'd, I, I was like, you know, I'm just so... Everything else is just... Yeah, everything else is cherry, a bonus. Yes. And the final thing was, everybody knows you're a loud and proud gay man. Yeah. Um, at the time... I think, was it after the show you did a sit-down with the Mirror, I think it mirror was? Mirror and the Sun, yeah. I always remember Stephen Gately, mm. RIP. As far as I'm aware, he came out with a paper, if you like, because he was told they were going to run it. And well, if he didn't do it, they would do it for him. And I always wondered... For me, personally, my experience was... Um, me Twitter got hacked and somebody posted a post... Saying, I would like to tell everybody I'm gay and I want to tell you. No I, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what for me, obviously, being. So, a t- when, when was that in the timeline so of the show? June 2010. So, June, like six months after the show. June, yeah, June, July. Nine months after, oh, yeah. So, I read this tweet and obviously, I'm a teenager and I'm working out who I am as a person. Yeah. And I'm like, right, okay. So, somebody's wrote this online. And first of all, everybody thought it was me. And, but obviously, I'm having the battle inside my head of being like, okay, I've been hacked, but what they're saying is actually true. So I kind of need to address this now yeah. because I'm now going to, and management were like, you know, put a tweet out and just say you've been hacked. Leave it at that. And nobody, first of all, I would also like to say, I think pe- people kind of think that, like they go, oh, well, why didn't you come out before X Factor? You know, nobody who knew me knew I was gay. You know, like I, like my parents didn't know, none of my friends did. I'd never had that conversation with anyone. And did you know at the time? I mean, I think looking back now I did, but I think at the time you're you're a confused teenager, and you know, and you're sitting in press interviews and they're asking you how many girls you've slept with, and you know, are you gay, are you straight, are you this, are you that? And I was like, I don't know how to answer any of these questions. I don't really know the answers myself, you know? Did you lie at the time? Did you? Or... I, I, well, I don't think... It was anybody's business at that time because yeah. I didn't want to, I didn't know who I was and I wasn't prepared to offer that information to anybody until I knew who I was. Good for you. So I think it wasn't a lie. It was, it's none of your business, Yeah. you know, until I know who I am. And when I know who I am, I'll tell you exactly who I am, you know? So the hacking happened and we put a tweet out and said I was hacked. And then obviously my mind goes into a whole thinking process of being like, right, actually, I need to kind of address this because, yeah, okay, I know who I am now and I've had a bit of time and I realise I'm attracted to men and I need to discuss it, you know, and be honest about it because I, I didn't have anything to hide. So I 
Taught me mum, uh, taught me dad, and... Both cool? Yeah, absolutely fine. Like, no issues whatsoever. It was the easiest process whatsoever. And it was me, actually, I was just like, okay, well, we need to, you know, disc- we need to tell your management because I think it's important that you're just honest about who you are. She was like, otherwise, you know, you don't want to spend the rest of your life trying to hide and dodge questions and interviews and, like, it's just a recipe for disaster. Just have it out there. And just be honest about it. You've got nothing to hide. You've got nothing to be ashamed of. And were you, which is wonderful, by the way, to hear from your parents, because yeah. there's so many horror stories of that part not I going well. I was very well. lucky. I realised yeah. that not a lot of people, you know, I mean, some people do, but I realised that that's not the case for everyone, yeah. you know. Um, were you worried about perception, public perception? Do you think well, it would matter? Like, uh, you know, like there, there, there have been... For, um, me, for me, it wasn't... For me, again, it, like my view on that was this is who I am. And if I'm going to make a decision based on followers and fans and like, if I'm going to make, if I'm going to base my happiness on the opinion of people who are going to buy an album, that is going to end in tears anyways, because that's not the right way to go through life, you know? And that's a slippery road to, you know, you see these people who quite clearly done that in the industry and years later they've been massively affected by it you know mentally and environmentally in their own environments they're surrounded by you know we hear it all the time you see stories about people and um so i i was like it uh, that's kind of irrelevant i just have to be honest and say who i am and that's it and put it to bed you know okay good and there was no do you know what unpleasantness came from the support i got from that was actually like amazing great you know and i it was and so it should be. It shouldn't be an issue now. Like it, and it was still kind of a big deal then. I mean, I was I was more shocked that um, I was more shocked that it was front page of two two newspapers. I was like, well, well it's a slow news day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you know. You know, I remember because the next day I didn't want to. The next day I didn't really want to go out. I was a little bit like, oh god, this is awkward. Like I've just discussed my whole personal life, and we obviously knew ahead of time that it was it, we. I got a text message because basically when, when things like that happen, you get the, you get like a, a rough copy of, so you know what's, when you, when you do a sit down interview like that, yeah. a couple of days previous to it going out or, you know, the night before they send through a copy approval, which is like something where you can see what's being written and, um, and kind of fact check it really and make sure that nothing's yeah. gone awry. And um, I got it and I was, when I saw it, it was the front page. I was like, oh, <gasps> mortified. <laughs> I was mortified, you know. People forget as well, you know. I'm talking about this now like it was nothing. I was an 18-year-old teenager. Like, you, if you think back to being a teenager, yeah. like, the things that you're embarrassed about at 18, and I was discussing all of this in front of the public, you know. Like, it, I, it, it sounds very just like, oh, you know, it was great and it was wonderful. I was mortified at the time. Like, that is I terrifying. Just wanted to be a teenager. I didn't want to have to deal with that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, I remember the next day just being like, oh, my God, I can't believe it's on the front page. And, um, and yeah, so we went, we went to a shop near the flat where I was staying. And me and my mum walked to this, I think it was like a Marks and Spencer's or something. It was, on, it was on Knightsbridge, you know, the road in Knightsbridge where Harrods is and everything. That's where I was, near where I was staying. And um, I remember it was just all over the newspaper stands. Yeah. But what was really nice is I walked into the store and everyone was like, well done, congratulations. Oh, lovely. But yeah, it was a really, really nice. And again, I realised that's not the case for everyone, you know. But it's funny you're saying about the slow news day because our, our prime minister, we call him the Taoiseach, 
He's his name is Leo Varadkar, and he's two years in the job maybe, and he's gay, and he's also his parents are Indian, and so when he was elected or he came to power, a lot of coverage was Ireland, the first openly gay prime minister, yeah. son of an immigrant, and it was funny people. The sexuality part really split people. Like, should you even acknowledge that in the headline? I, I think not now. I don't think we should now. I mean, I, and I think we all have a responsibility now as how we direct questions to people, how we print things in newspapers, because how you write something can massively sway someone's opinion. Yeah. You know, and how it's worded and taking it off like on a, on a, on a completely different topic. I always use an example when they put pictures on of people on a beach even, you know, and they go like showing off the fuller figure or showing off the blah, blah. It, it, the way you angle that, it almost angles the response in a certain way when sure. it should just be such and such as sunbathing on a beach. Or not at all for yeah, you know, ideally, like, but yeah. Yeah, or this person is the Prime Minister. Bam. Yeah, and I guess that one was, we weren't so long after the equality yeah, referendum and, again, and, you know, and it was all that at play. And, and in a sense as well, it's a really proud moment, you know, because that's amazing and it shows you how far we've come. It's a vis- visibility know. thing and a representation yeah, thing and all these. But I think we have, to, we have to have a responsibility as well of making it, you know, we, we, I still get asked an interview I mean obviously we're talking about it in depth so it's in a different context but I still get you know asked in interviews now you know like you know and you're on a TV show to promote an album and you're like you don't ask David Beckham those kind of questions sure you don't ask another straight performer those kind of questions so why are you asking me that you know yeah and and while we ask them it still creates that perception that there's a massive issue and I think it's about we need to move forward as a collective Instead of making it that divide, you know? Yeah, well said, well said. On that note, you you just reminded me, with the beach stuff, you weren't on a beach, but you were on Lorraine <laughs> <laughs> on yeah, ITV. Yeah, exactly. This was for the, around the Joseph time? Yeah, probably. Just before Joseph, I think. Okay. Just before. And someone took a freeze frame of you in an unflattering well, angle. Well, I'll tell you what happened. Right, go on. Listen, I've had many, many an unflattering photo taken of me on stage and off stage, you know, where you get a dodgy selfie at stage door or somebody stopped you in a petrol station and you look an absolute mess. So I'm not bothered about that. Like, I'm not bothered about an unflattering... You know, you look at it and you're like, oh my God, I look terrible there. I have and better yes, angles. I look at that photo <laughs> and think I look dreadful. I don't look dreadful, but... It's not a flattering photo of me. But the, the the reason I t- took issue with it was because, first of all, what happened is they, they asked me to lean out of a shot. Yeah. She was doing a presenting on the other end of the sofa. Uh-huh. They said, when she comes to you, just sit forward and we'll match the camera angle. Just lean out of the shot because the camera was coming in from that side. So I'm leaning out of the shot, like, on a chair, leaning back. So I've got a few neck rolls. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and somebody took a screen grab. The, the, the press office took a screen grab and what i didn't like was is it was comparing my full grown body as a man yeah comparing it to a teenager and saying you know and and almost making young people think that grown into your body and you know i'm not overweight i train four and five times a week i keep in shape you know i look after me body handsome man by the way (laughs) (laughs) thank you um and you know i look after myself you know and and what I didn't like is one article did it and everybody ran with it. And it became this whole like body shaming thing of like, oh, you know, growing into a man from a teenager is, means you're fat. And I was like, absolutely not. You are not going to use my name to make that a thing. I do not want young kids reading an article with my name in it and you making them feel bad because their shoulders have broadened and they're a little bit stockier than they were when they were 18. Who isn't? 
Yeah. You know, like, so I put a story out. I went to the gym the next day, ironically. Um, <laughs> I was going to the gym anyways, and I went in and I was reading the comments on these, not the comments, but I was seeing the articles, you know, like coming up on Twitter and fans were like retweeting it and be like, this is disgusting, like blah, blah. And I was just like, okay, I'm just going to do something funny with it. So I took a picture in the mirror and I was in shape at the time. So I took a picture, I looked good in the photo, posted it and said, you know, um, when you take your fuller figured ass to the gym, um, <laughs> hashtag daily fail, there's a clue who wrote it. And it ended up spinning the whole thing on its head because the minute I did it, kind of everyone was like, oh yeah, I see why it's disgusting that people do that, you know. And for the first time, I really understood how girls must feel in this industry, you know. Okay. Uh, like I really kind of, I never thought about it before because I think previous to that, you know, like it's only in the last couple of years we've started to kind of body shame men as well. You know, it was always the girls that got the roughest, you know, with outfits, hair and makeup and all that beach stuff. Yeah, that beach bod culture is grim. T- it was the first time I was like, oh my God, like girls get this all the time, you know? Yeah. Um, so, But it has started to spill to men. Did you see recently Jason Momoa, the guy who's Aquaman in the Marvel DC oh, right, world? Okay. And he was in, do you watch Game of Thrones? He was the... No, says Joe. He's like dismissive. <laughs> no, I did not. And he was in Game of Thrones as well. He's this huge, stocky guy. Yeah. And same again, like hardcore training, I guess, for Thrones and Aquaman. Yeah. And maybe has been off set for a couple of months, just on the beach. I and just like, wants to live his life. Still in phenomenal shape. But oh not yes, the I did. Ripped. I didn't know who that was, but I did see that article. And people are going I dad bod, and you're like, man, I would pay to look like that tomorrow. Sensational. I think people forget. You know, people forget. We all make. It's what I see, like kitchen table talk. Yeah. You know, we all sit in front of the telly and we go, oh God, that person's looking a bit rough. Uh, you don't need to tweet that person and tell them. You know, keep your opinions to your friends on the sofa, you know, and that, like, honestly, that person really doesn't need to know that you think they're fat. Yeah. They really don't need to know that. And it's also not going to make you feel any better by tweeting them that. It's probably going to make you feel, it's probably going to make you have a little bit more of a negative headspace. So just keep it to yourself. And if you really need to say it, have a little rant about it in your house. And move on. And if you it's need, really that easy. If you need to have a, a, a rant about the fact that a celebrity you've never met in your life is fat, then I think you need to read a book, reorganize your priorities, yeah, and maybe like, go. We all look at people, you know, and, and people probably do it to me. They see you on an interview, you've probably had about three hours sleep, and they go, oh God, he looks rough this morning. <laughs> you know, we all do that. Like, that's just human nature. Yeah. You, you give your opinion about somebody you see on television. But I think when we start to verbalize it and write articles about it and, like, make it become this, like, tabloid click fodder thing. That's when it's dangerous, like, because it's, it makes people so visibly aware of things that really don't matter. Given, like, we were talking about the aspect of the show and the business. Simon Cowell. Yeah. He's a businessman. Mm. I guess he, he was the driving force behind the X Factor. A good man. A nice man. A businessman. He's a businessman. An enigma. He's a businessman. Uh, my experiences of him with him were always pleasant. I never had any awful experiences with him. Okay. And he's a businessman. If his end game was to make as much money as possible, then he's done it, hasn't <laughs> he's, he? He's done it. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, it, how he operates is not how I would operate, but I don't hold him. I don't hold anything against him for that. Sure, okay. That's, you know, we're all entitled to work in business how we want to work in business you know yeah and finally i feel like you've lived 10 lifetimes in 10 years <laughs> i feel like i have you know <laughs> sage life advice words of wisdom anybody listening in showbiz in the life arena what's kind of your hallmark words of wisdom you would impart 
show business would be to not worry so much and just en- make sure you're enjoying it. Like, make sure it's supposed to be fun. It's a pe- People take this industry far too seriously, you know. My motto has always been, just be good at your job. Your main focus should be that everybody leaves that performance or the television performance that you've done. Or And, you know, not everybody's going to love everything you do. Like, I'm very well aware of that. But when somebody comes to see you, if everybody leaves having had a great night and been entertained for two hours then you've been good at your job. You've done... And that's the most important thing. Yeah. People get washed up in all of the other unimportant things that really, really don't matter, you know? Your audience have come to be entertained. They've paid to be entertained to a standard. And that should be the main focus. Primary focus. The rest is noise, yeah. That's exactly what Lewis Capaldi said. He had to check himself from... Only, like... That's that episode only, like, three months old. He said he found himself... He had to slap himself going... This should be fun. He said he was getting too caught up in, it's going so well. I need to make sure the next thing is an absolute banger. Yeah. We need to have this meeting. And he's like, hang on, I'm, I'm actually not enjoying myself. I need to. And you know what? People, and, and you know where that comes from? I was just thinking about this the other day. People base their success on other people's perception of their success. Yeah. So, like, people go, you know, oh, you know, like, you know, we've talked about it today. We haven't, we haven't drawn down about it and made it a negative thing. But people go like, oh, you know, you were dropped by cycle. Like, how was that? And you're like, if I was still hung up on that, like now, I'd, I'd be, I'd, I'd actually be slightly worried for myself, you know? Yeah. Like, okay, that happened. Let's move on. Next thing, you know? People sometimes get it with me. Like, they'll come up to me and be like, oh, are you still singing? Because you're not on this morning every day, you know, and promoting something. And, you know, I do an album every maybe two years. Yeah. Like, their perception is, oh, he's not successful now because you don't see him on telly anymore. Uh, actually, yeah. no, I'm actually on wonderful tours that I have the best time ever. Yeah. Grafting away, having a wonderful time, earning a living with meeting people and performing to sell out audiences. Like, but it's that perception. It's somebody else's perception of your success. Sure. You know, and I check myself in a way of go, am I happy? Am I having a great time? Am I loving what I do? Yeah, all right, I'm successful. You know, you like that. That's the way. That's the way you have to do it. Otherwise, you can listen to all these people around you. You know, oh, where do you want to go next? What do you? Want? Everybody's always on the next thing. Just enjoy the moment of what you're doing. You know, am I happy? Am I enjoying what I do? Yes. Ergo, life is good. That's a wonderful, optimistic note it's to wrap true. it up on. It's true. It's so true. Joe, we were supposed to have half the time and you've been so kind in letting me stick around. <laughs> or so I really just appreciate it on a load of rubbish. No, no. Hey, do you know what? You're an open book and it's lovely. It's been, you say 2012, so it's been seven years and uh, you were lovely then and you're equally lovely now. So Thank a pleasure. You. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having us. So that's it, folks. Another episode of Deep Diving. I think everyone will agree. Joe McKeldry is something of a legend and a complete gentleman. And we wish him nothing but the best and thank him again for his time. If you like the podcast, I would ask you to subscribe. It's free. It don't cost you nothing. It just means as soon as I upload new episodes, you'll get a little notification and you won't miss one. Also, if you enjoyed it, this is a word of mouth podcast. Take a screenshot, stick it on your socials, tell people you liked it and help spread the good word. See you next time.